Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. America had always been super sexist. Like if, if you were a woman, there just weren't the realm of opportunities available to you for almost all of American history that are available now. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, I am going to stop that. And then she did it. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today as usual by Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. But we also thought in light of the changing news environment that we should bring onto the show Ian Milheiser. Uh, he is a senior correspondent at Vox, a specialist in uh, judicial and constitutional issues. I, I think a, a former guest on The Weeds and also has a mini series on voting rights uh, that's running in, in The Weeds feed uh, currently these days. But, you know, we, we wanted to talk about in a weedsy way. I think a lot of the political conversation has gone to questions of hypocrisy, questions of retaliation, questions of democratic strategy. Um, but but in a weedsy way, I mean, I think we just want to try to talk about what's happening here. Um, and I think that that starts with trying to understand and appreciate uh, the actual legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, you know, is like, there's like RBG swag for sale at a store across the street from me in a way that like there there just isn't for like Alana Kagan. Um, right. I wish there were because I think that there um, and we'll get into this a little bit is that one of the reasons I'm excited to have this conversation is because there is like the notorious RBG, the personality that existed almost entirely separate from the actual justice. Today, we're going to talk about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her impact, the specific legal changes that will or could happen with her no longer on the bench, and what this means for our politics in a more structured kind of way and in a less sweatshirts you can buy on that place on 14th Street kind of way. I actually strongly disagree. I think that the cultivation of RBG is something that like, you know, despite the Kagan jokes, like kind of couldn't happen to somebody who hadn't come at the particular time that she came in American jurisprudential history. It's interesting because she is nominated and placed on the court in the early 1990s. And then it's only with her dissent in a 2013 case that that becomes the like shots fired emoji rbg yes. which are, so there's a there's a break and so she has a lot of opinions going for almost 20 years of being on the court that are are not hashtag shots fired hashtag girl boss right it, it's worth kind of separating her legacy as a judge, which is essentially as a Supreme Court justice, even though she did have, you know, an appellate career before that, from her contributions to American law, which like, 
And I think that this is a history that's to a certain extent been reclaimed as people have tried to find a solid footing for their RBG fandom. But it's still a worthwhile history that's been reclaimed as kind of looking at the role that she had in kind of the forging of sex discrimination as something that needed to be given. And like the legal term here is strict scrutiny, but like essentially she is a pivotal figure in turning what had been for like a century, this very narrow 14th Amendment sense that the 14th Amendment was supposed to be for Black people. And so therefore, there was a little bit of space to say that discrimination against Black people was unconstitutional, although like obviously it took, you know, until the mid 20th century for that to really mean anything. But you couldn't use that argument for other groups for the most part. Like there's some jurisprudence in there for like ancestry or national origin, but that's still closely related to race. It's because of the work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and less because of any one particularly brilliant argument she came up with than because of a strategy of litigation and argument that she pursued over the course of several years that she ultimately not only brought American law to a place where sex discrimination in law, both like explicit and often you know, things that only became clear, like at the level of you're applying for a benefit, but you, a single father, can't get a benefit because it's only available for single mothers. That kind of thing not only allows the courts to say government has has a very high bar to meet to enshrine such discrimination in law, but also helped create a system that allowed that level of scrutiny to get applied to other forms of discrimination as well. And so it is actually a very substantial legacy for this particular moment in center-left politics when claims of identity and structural discrimination are something that's being paid so much attention to that like in law, which is often a realm where there's a very explicit desire to avoid looking too much at social science or evolving norms or, you know, there's very there's generally a desire to make your argument without having to refer to reality. Ideally, you want to be able to do both, but like you can't just do the latter. She was able to weave reality into law in a way that it helped a lot of people after her. Now, that's different from like her legacy. You know, her legacy as a judge doesn't show that kind of pioneering spirit. But it does reflect what's kind of the current state of liberal jurisprudence, which is that it's a unification of a view of the federal government's job being to protect rights with an attention to what the actual policy implications of various decisions will be. And we saw that both in her efforts to hold majorities together, like in the Obamacare cases, where she was crucial in getting the other liberal justices to sign on to a John Roberts' opinion that they might not have, you know, that might not have been their ideal opinion in order to preserve the law. And also in her dissents, like the Shelby County dissent that gave her, you know, such prestige. So I think that both of you make good points when you look at the arc of her history and why she became a cultural figure when she did. So the irony of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that as she gained more formal power, as she became a judge and then a justice, she receded in her influence on the law. Like her most significant impact on the law was the feminist jurisprudence that she convinced the Supreme Court to implement when she was still just a lawyer. 
She became a judge in 1980, shortly before Reagan came into power and the liberal coalition started to collapse. And as a justice, she didn't just spend most of her time in dissent, but she spent her entire time on the court watching the law moved inexorably to the right as more and more conservative justices were appointed. And so I think the reason why the mythology of, of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg emerged when it did was because there was this tremendous pain and longing for a past amongst liberals when they felt like things were possible. I, I mean, America had always been super sexist. Like if, if you were a woman, there just weren't the realm of opportunities available to you for almost all of American history that are available now. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, I am going to stop that. And then she did it. And in 2013, when the notorious RBG myth emerged, we'd just been through a government shutdown. We'd been through a huge fight over whether or not we were going to default on our debt. There were very real, real questions about whether America was capable of doing anything, much less making big, transformative, progressive change. And so a lot of this mythology, I think, grew from this nostalgia for an, for, for an era where Big transformative change was still possible. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was our bridge to a world where it was possible. I was also struck by the, the, the factoid that circulated on Twitter that she is the first woman to lay in state at the U.S. Capitol, which, you know, both reflects obviously women's historic exclusions from positions of, of power, but, but also the fact that that pioneering generation of sort of woman firsts is very new, right? So, I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the Supreme Court when I was 12. Darren Jane will be younger than that. And, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor was already on the court. So it doesn't strike me as like crazy, like a woman Supreme Court justice, right? A woman Secretary of State, woman senators, you know, like th that's been my whole life. But then you look back on it and you're like, well, how can it be that nobody has laid in state before Ruth Bader Ginsburg? And well, Sandra Day O'Connor is still alive. Madeleine Albright is still alive, right? Like it, it, they're, they're elderly at this point, right? But it, it means that that pioneering generation is very, very close to us and now passing away, perhaps starting with, with Ginsburg herself in a sort of an interesting way, right? And and we were close, right? We were so close to the reality in which Hillary Clinton becomes the first woman president and maybe tips the Wisconsin and Pennsylvania Senate races along with her. And RBG's, you know, replacement is appointed by the first woman president, where the Scalia seat is replaced by a liberal, where the 5-4, I mean, we'll talk about the contours, but there had roughly been a five conservative justice majority in one form or another for decades, right? And we're we're so close in like, you know, the movie Sliding Doors, right? Like we're 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 so close to a very different meaning of Justice Ginsburg's strategic retirement, her replacement, her passing soon after that, and it being a kind of a a tying a bow on this kind of arc of second wave feminism. And instead we're in what seems like a real moment for for progressives of loss or for conservatives of opportunity to somehow like put an exclamation point on things. 
One thing that I think is fascinating, I think that is worth getting into a little bit, is that the cult of RBG also reflects the growth of the acknowledgement of judicial supremacy. I went back and looked, and Ginsburg was confirmed by a Senate vote of 96 to 3. Like, the idea of getting a Senate vote of 96 to 3 on any Supreme Court justice now or in the foreseeable future seems unimaginable. And this was obviously coming two years after Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings, which were um, Politico described them as tempestuous, and I'll just leave that there. But... (laughs) The idea and it's it's after the kind of myth, you know, the the moderate information account of how this works is that after the Robert Bork nomination under Reagan, you and you now have a much higher, you know, polarization and scrutiny of judges opinions. And like, clearly, that narrative is complicated slightly by the fact that you have this pioneering liberal jurist getting nominated by getting confirmed by 96 to three. It's also interesting because she's a liberal jurist who also Republicans thought that she had a conservative reading of liberalism, which I find to be fascinating. I'd love to hear more from Ian on this. But I think also the idea of like how conservatives think about thought about Justice Scalia, except that when they helpfully exclude his opinions on flag burning, which he was right on flag burning. But Ginsburg seems to symbolize the idea of like we can have our own justice on this court that as uh, the New York Times' Jamel Bowie wrote in the New York Times today, and a lot of people have been tweeting this, that the passing of a Supreme Court justice should not throw American politics into this much disarray. And it is a sign that we have, for 20-odd years now, we have basically left much of the most important decisions made to the Supreme Court because Congress would rather tweet about things they think are mean or something like that. And I'm interested in how the symbolism of Ruth Bader Ginsburg also indicates the growth and understanding that judicial supremacy is here to stay. But also kind of an understanding of the limits of that, right? Like, I do think that a lot of the and it's hard to kind of run the counterfactual on what happens if RBG isn't made into a like millennial white female icon. But I think that some of the appeal that she had in in her last years was that she was straining a little bit against the constraints of the notion of the, you know, superlatively neutral judiciary. She at the same, you know, on the one hand, like wasn't acceding maximally to the idea that judicial appointments are a strategic tool for the Democratic Party insofar as she refused, you know, she like there would have been an obvious opportunity for her to retire in the second Obama term and she didn't do so. But at the same time, her comments during the 2016 election, which certainly like got got blown into a big deal by the right, but which did reflect a level of expressing preference for a presidential candidate that wasn't precedented. And of course, the fact that she clearly wanted it to be known on her deathbed that she very much did not want to be replaced until not not just until after the election, but until a new president was in place, which says something about how she thought the election was going to go, does reflect the growing frustration of, you know, in the same way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when Justice Scalia died, much was made of their friendship and the fact that they were able to have a good personal relationship while still disagreeing on things. And I think that the iconification of her by liberals reflects a certain frustration that like we would be willing to be friends you know like it's not our fault we're playing by the rules we're being civil we're being friendly but 
things have gotten so bad and the other side has just gotten so uncompromising that it's unfair to ask us to be the only ones who are constrained by norms. So I'm going to take the somewhat contrarian position that Justice Ginsburg was actually an icon of judicial restraint. And she wasn't unique amongst liberals or Democratic judges in this sense. So we're not fighting about Justice Ginsburg right now, this big fight over what the judiciary should be. It's not about Justice Ginsburg. It's not about Robert Bork either. It's about 1937. Ooh. So. Oh, boy. So. <laughs> You've already gotten Jane. I, Jane's oh yeah. on board with this. I am. Time for some history. Are, are, we, are, we right. talking, are we talking court packing? Uh, oh, no, this is way before court All packing. Right. So before We're talking about kosher chickens, kosher chickens, talking about filled milk, like all the lawyers are going to love this stuff. OK, so we had a super reactionary Supreme Court starting in the 19th century that basically felt the, and it cited very vague passages in the Constitution that it had a free reigning ability to veto walls. Um, you know, the, much of this era is referred to as the Lochner era after a decision called Lochner v. New York, which struck down a New York law preventing bakery from overworking their workers. I mean, the decisions from that era, you read them and it really just feels like they're making stuff up. I I mean, like there is some jurisprudential coherence in that, like they're building off of ideas that other people made up in the past, but it's very, very difficult to tie them to constitutional text. And what happened in 19... Well, so the the, the idea, right, was that there was a freedom of contract. Right. That was the theory. Was Just to spell it out, right? Much as... As as Roe v. Wade rests on a right to privacy, right. that some on the right have found to have been dubiously grounded right. in the text, the idea that you couldn't regulate working hours in a bakery was said to violate a freedom of contract idea, which allegedly exists in the 14th Amendment. So that, that's exactly right. So the idea was that you have a right to contract to work really long hours at really low wages and the law can't take that so-called right away from you. But anyways, so 1937, um, Roosevelt spends his first term in a big fight with the Supreme Court. He eventually wins. So the Supreme Court decides that it's going to back away from these decisions where the court was exercising a veto power over the economic policy of the United States. And for like 80 years, there was a truce in place. The truce was that everyone agreed that labor policy, economic policy, big questions of like, you know, how our economy should be regulated were not the business of the courts. Democrats and Republicans agreed on this. And if anything, you know, Democrats were trying to defend Roe v. Wade, which was their one outlier that, you know, did kind of resemble Lochner. But for the most part, everyone agreed that courts have a very limited role. And when Obama came in, the Supreme Court started and, you know, conservative lawyers started bringing back the kinds of arguments that were off the table for three generations in order to go after Obamacare. And as conservative judges started exercising more power, Republicans were like, "Ooh, we we like this. And so that's what this fight is about. This fight is about whether or not this truce that has been in place for 80 years where we all agree that the courts have a very limited role and will fight over Roe v. Wade on the side should remain in effect 
or whether we should we're going to abandon this truce. And if Republicans control the court, that means that they're going to start asserting a veto power over much of American law in the process. Okay, let's take a break here. And and then I want to come back and and make that turn to what's at stake here. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So in a kind of simplistic sense, we used to have a court that leaned to the right, but where Justice Kennedy was typically the kind of the swing vote. And when Justice Scalia unexpectedly died while Barack Obama was president, there was the opportunity to accomplish something that would have been quite historically significant, which was to replace him with, you know, Merrick Garland was considered a moderate choice among Democratic lawyers. but. Scalia was very, very conservative, right? So if you think in terms of the the influence on the median, there would have been a huge kind of switch. That, of course, didn't happen, in part because the, the stakes were so large there. Then Justice Kennedy retired, right? And he he strategically timed it so he would be replaced by a Republican president and a Republican Senate. But everyone's general understanding was that he hadn't it wasn't strategic on the level of he was going to be replaced by someone who was just like him. He's replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, who was a clerk of his, but who was understood to be much more um, fully paid up member of the contemporary conservative movement. And so that is an obvious change in the in the pivot points, right? Here, Justice Ginsburg, you know, is well known for her legacy as an attorney in the 70s, is well known for her fiery dissents, but is precisely not well known for her like swing status and her actual like influential Supreme. I mean, not that she never wrote a Supreme Court decision, but we don't have like over the past five years, like tons of RBG written opinions of the court that are now going to be replaced by Barrett opinions or, or, or what have you. So in concrete terms, I mean, I know, Jane, you, you've written some about this, like what were the rights continuing disappointments with the Roberts court that they could seek redress on in this new era. Yeah. no, Or like another way to put this is why is there so much more excitement? I mean, as much as the kind of 
outcome of the Kavanaugh hearings ended up getting a lot of conservatives fired up about him just kind of in a defensive way, there wasn't the kind of excitement over the chance to replace Anthony Kennedy, who had been a swing justice with a conservative that there is now to replace RBG. So, And I think that that does speak to the kind of disappointment with the Roberts court that has emerged that now there is an opportunity to correct. Right. I think part of this has to do with a level of specificity that you are seeing social conservatives specifically use. I I realize that specificity and specifically are basically the same thing, but whatever. So one of the the unspoken or not often spoken purpose of the Republican Party for social conservatives in many respects is to. If you vote for Republican presidents and elect Republicans to Congress, they will put in place conservative judges who adhere to an originalist view of the Constitution and then will deliver conservative rulings on abortion cases, on cases having to do with many of the most important aspects of public and private American life. The challenge there is twofold. One, the purportedly originalist justices who were nominated and put on the court have been making decisions that social conservatives don't like. And that has caused a lot of conservatives to argue, like, originalism has failed us. The the Federalist Society has failed us. We need to be extremely specific about what we mean when we say that a conservative justice or an originalist justice, we do not mean sort of a mundane adherence to a libertarian conservatism. We mean you have to say that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. I'll quote here from Senator Josh Hawley, who said that there was a case earlier this year, Bostock v. Clayton County, which held that federal law prohibits employment discrimination against LGBTQ workers. And there was a decision written by Justice Neil Gorsuch. And so Hawley responded that um, this, in a sense, represents the end of the conservative legal mo- movement as we know it, because I'll quote him, if if we've been fighting for originalism and textualism, and this is the result of that, then I have to say it turns out we haven't been fighting for very much. Or maybe we've been fighting for quite a lot, but it's been the exactly the opposite of what we were fighting for. So I think that with the rulings in Bostock and with other cases, I think that there is a sense that the specificity of what these hearings are going to look like, where the Federalist Society can't claim that this is an originalist justice You can't say that this is someone who appeals to the constitutional norms of federalism. You have got to say Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. Obergefell was wrongly decided. These decisions are wrong. These decisions, not even whether or not they apply to a textual reading of the law, but these uh, these rulings were wrong because in some ways social conservatives say it is. I mean, so I do want to call some attention. I don't think we need to like go down this rabbit hole, hole, but just because if you're throwing out the prospect of a consensus that Obergefell was wrongly decided, it's just worth noting for listeners that like there is absolutely a push toward explicitness on Roe. And like there has been for decades organization about that, that it is because so much of the conservative establishment appears to have given up the fight on gay marriage in particular in the post-Obergefell landscape, 
which is a fascinating development. And I think that that speaks to where social conservatism is right now. That's why you see among a lot of social conservatives an understanding that now the fight is on issues of religious freedom, on the specific issues. Abortion still is a major driver. But when I've spoken to social conservatives, they've essentially said that, like, it's not that they changed post-Obergefell. It's just that the mouth noises they use now are different because they recognize that on those specific issues, like if there were a case that went to challenge Obergefell, the number of Republican senators who would run away from reporters would be extraordinarily high, especially because I think that there is an understanding that the issue of abortion is a cross-market driver. And I'll, I'll explain that by saying that there are a lot of their number of LGBT conservatives. There are gay conservatives who are married. And there very much is a sense that on that particular issue, you, you'll hear sometimes some conservative personalities will argue, well, I'm a libertarian on those issues, or this shouldn't have been left to the courts at all, or that's a that's an issue that should be handled by the states or in some respect. But abortion is viewed as an issue that can be a driver across those classes where you can be a gay conservative who is opposed to abortion. You can be these cross-cultural, cross-demographic entities and still feel the same way about Roe and about abortion writ large, And which is a, a really fascinating shift for anyone who's been alive for longer than five years. Um, the reason I wanted to bring that up jurisprudentially is that I think it's it's worth pointing out that like as much as jurists talk about, especially on the right, about, you know, the original public meaning of the Constitution and how things shouldn't be left to shift because norms and political windows are shifting, there is an extent to which you're going to be colored in which fights you're prioritizing by which political and social fights you see as worth fighting or not. And so I think that that's as we look toward a conservative era of the Supreme Court, something that should be understood as kind of an untested relation between what you would say in a law seminar is like not great law and what you would actually be willing to go after. I think this is a fight about whether judges are distinct from other policymakers. Judges are clearly policymakers. But the issue here is that, like, if I'm a lawyer and I want to get a court to do something, I have to wrap what I want that court to do in the language of the law. And if I can't make a plausible sounding legal argument for what I want to get done, in theory, judges are supposed to say no to me. And so, like, to take a very recent case, June Medical is a abortion case that the Supreme Court just handed down. And the facts of June Medical are pretty much identical to a different abortion case that the Supreme Court decided just a few years ago. The only difference is that Justice Kennedy was on the court for the first case and Justice Kavanaugh was on the court for the second case. And... One of the rules that lawyers are supposed to wrap their arguments in is called stare decisis. We're supposed to be deferential to past opinions. So John Roberts really hates abortion and he really wanted to rule against Roe v. Wade. I mean, I'm sure that he's eventually going to get around to overruling it. But when you bring him the exact same case, if you read John Roberts's decision in June Medical or you read his concurring opinion, basically what he's saying is, come on. 
follow the rules, folks. And, you know, what Josh Hawley is saying, you know, what a lot of these social conservative voices are saying is basically we don't want to have to deal with that constraint anymore. That is a real constraint on judicial power, this need to follow you know, legal norms. And that is what I, I really think is being fought over here is whether those norms should still constrain as Republicans gain more and more seats on the Supreme Court. And, and I mean, you've seen this for a long time in the different opinions that the different conservative justices write about certain things, right? Like I, I was looking recently back at the now long ago um, Gun Free Schools Act case in which, you know, the, the Supreme Court in 5-4 decision strikes down this provision of the Gun Free Schools Act by saying this is too tenuously related to interstate commerce to fly. And for liberal justices dissent, and they say, no, like this is just the same as the New Deal cases. Like, there's no difference here. And the opinion of the court is that it's very different for all kinds of special reasons and blah, 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 blah. But then Clarence Thomas has a concurrence in which he says, no, like, the liberals are right. This is just the same as the New Deal cases. But the New Deal cases were wrongly decided. And and we should reverse them, right? And and that's always a, a, a tension, right? So I, if you look at the you know, litigation around the civil rights movement. The first bunch of civil rights victories that Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP win, they're all like, oh, these accommodations aren't really equal. Or, oh, there's actually a special provision regulating the railroad industry that hasn't been enforced correctly, right? And it takes a long time. It's like a 15-year ramp until the Brown v. Board of Education decision in which, you know, like the, the ruling of the court was like, oh, yeah, those old decisions were wrong. And like that that's a big difference. So like there's a reason that we look at Brown as the like iconic historical turning point and not some earlier decision about how Missouri didn't have a law school for African-Americans or a particular thing about a train in Arkansas. Right. Because like like people who believe strongly in something like they want the decision that says like you were right all along, you know, like pro-life people think Roe v. Wade was really bad, right? Not not that like we should limit the scope of the precedent in some kind of way, right? And they would they would like the court to be like, yep, like you guys were on the right side of history the whole time. Like this was terrible. What's the range of issues where this is plausibly safe? So we, we, uh, you know, because because we're talking about a about a one judge turn, and I think that no matter how right wing this new judge is, they're not going to team up with Clarence Thomas and overturn like everything from the past eighty years. I, I think that's hopefully right. Um, so like, I mean, I guess let's start with like the the issues that the social conservatives really care about because that's what we were just discussing. So Roe is already dead. I mean, Roe has been on life support since Justice Kennedy retired. It's just a matter of, you know, how long it takes for a competent lawyer to bring a case that is not literally identical to another abortion case that went the other way. Three other fights that I think we're going to see. So there's a huge fight going on right now about religious exemptions. There's a case pending right now involving the city of Philadelphia delegated some authority over child adoptions to a you know, to various 
private groups. The one group they delegated to is a Catholic group. And that Catholic group discriminates against LGBT people. It won't let them adopt children. And so the question here, I mean, this is I'm actually very surprised that the court took this particular case because most of the cases we've seen so far have been about whether a private business that isn't doing anything governmental at all is allowed to discriminate against customers who are gay or trans because of the religious beliefs of the owner. This case is, I mean, it's it's a Catholic organization, but it's a Catholic organization exercising government authority. It's a government, a con- contractor for the city of Philadelphia. And if the Supreme Court, which I think is now likely, says that government contractors have the right to claim religious exemptions to the law. I mean, that goes to some pretty hairy places. The main religious exemption cases, though, are basically, I mean, like we have a longstanding like sex discrimination body of law, but also the Catholic Church does not ordain women priests. So that's the uncontroversial version of this, right? That, like, we're not going to just, like, make the Catholic religion illegal as part of our general purpose of of having sex discrimination law. But then you get into these, these edge cases, like, okay, can a baker claim religious reasons for violating generally applicable civil rights laws, um, you know, Hobby Lobby. And, and you know, it, it goes to, like, do you have to have these exemptions in the law or are they optional? Can you just sort of claim them freelance? And that's become, as Jane was saying, that's become like the retreat, particularly in LGBT issues, where I think conservatives are no longer fighting to, like, entrench discriminatory principles into the public sphere, but they want to say you can't have broad non-discrimination rules. So I think that's right. But there's a real question as to how broad these exemptions get. Mm -hmm. So like one decision that I think is safe, at least for now, is the Bostock decision. That was a decision interpreting. It was not a constitutional decision, interpreted a federal civil rights law to say that it is illegal to fire someone for being LGBT. And that decision was six to three. So, you know, Republicans would have to fill two more seats for that to plausibly be on the chopping block. But the thing that I'm fairly certain is going to happen is that the Supreme Court is going to say that if you are an owner of a business and you claim a religious exemption to employing gay people or bi people or trans people, you're allowed to fire them. But there are all kinds of edge cases within that. What if I'm a mid-level manager at Walmart and I have a religious objection to um, working, having someone work for me who is gay, but Walmart, the corporation, doesn't have an objection to it? You know, am I, as a mid-level manager, allowed to claim a religious right to fire this person? And so, you know, you can imagine these religious exemptions being interpreted so broadly that even though Bostock nominally remains good law, pretty much anyone who discriminates against a gay person or a trans person has an out. You had started earlier, Ian, talking about the New Deal, um, and I I was talking about uh, this 1995 case uh, about schools. And, um, you know, people associate the Supreme Court primarily with these cultural politics issues. But Justice Kennedy was often aligned with liberals 
on social issues and cultural controversies. And yet he strategically timed his retirement to be replaced by Donald Trump. And so critically, I I mean, both, it seems to be not entirely a coincidence that Republicans put Kennedy and O'Connor on the bench in the first place, even if they later claim to regret it. And also both Kennedy and O'Connor themselves saw themselves as more aligned with the conservative legal movement. Uh, and in, in my view, the moral of the story is pretty clear that, you know, the, the judicial branch primarily concerns itself with economic and regulatory issues, or at least that's the, that's the part of the conservative legal movement project, even if it's not as interesting to like the man on the street or, or the media. Right. Yeah. Like if you go to the Federalist Society's gatherings, like at at a Federalist Society convention, I meet a handful of people who are litigating religious liberty cases or who like work for an anti-abortion group. Most of the people I meet there in a room full of a thousand lawyers, probably 900 of them are lawyers at firms that represent corporate clients who want their corporate clients to be able to not be sued. Or to not be regulated. And yeah, I mean, that's really where the, you know, it it doesn't get the headlines, but it's where the energy is on the conservative movement. And it's also just it's just like the bulk of lawsuit, right? Like just like just like if you look at what happens like day to day in a federal courthouse, like it's a lot of businesses suing each other oftentimes for obscure reasons. Right. Um, And then, but, you know, it's like people trying to make claims against companies that they feel have screwed them over somehow. And different kinds of regulatory battles are just like a very hefty volume. And it's one where the law has been, it's not like we're going to wake up with Justice Ginsburg's replacement confirmed, and it's like, oh my God, there's <laughs> conservatives in the judiciary. Like they've, right. they've they've been there for a long time, but there's but there's always a question of how far does this stuff go? Right. Because you know, Justice O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, it seems Justice Roberts as well have never been comfortable saying exactly like, okay, we're just we're just tossing a couple generations worth of case law. So let me start with something that I think I have a high degree of certainty is going to happen very soon. So there are a ton of federal laws where Congress, rather than like setting out, here are the rules that you have to obey if you are a power plant. It instead says, here is a broad general policy that we want to be implemented to make sure that there's less pollution coming from power plants. And it is the job of the EPA to implement that policy. So, for example, um, the Clean Air Act says that power plants have to use the best available technology to reduce emissions with certain factors such as cost taken into account as well. And it's the EPA's job to study how the technology is changing. And as new technology emerges and as it becomes affordable, it will hand down what's called a regulation. And that regulation tells the power plants, okay, you can't use this old technology that you've been using. You now have to install this new technology. And Justice Gorsuch, in particular, has wanted to eviscerate Congress's power to delegate power to federal agencies in this way. And he has the votes to do a lot of that. He already had the votes even before Ginsburg died. For the Supreme Court to say, we are going to play a much more active role in vetoing regulations that we think goes too far. 
And so like here I'm going to get a little fuzzy because I don't know exactly what's going to happen. But with each Republican, you know, now that the Supreme Court has decided that it's going to claim a veto power over these regulations with each Republican appointed to the court, they're just going to use that veto power more and more often. And so we could potentially soon be living in a world where laws like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act really don't have much force at all because they depend on the EPA's power to regulate. And the EPA is about to be stripped of a lot of that power. And I mean, so this is a sort of a a general characteristic of the American political system is that so we we do it in a few different ways. Right. So there's there's the EPA style in which you have a unitary executive agency whose director serves at the pleasure of the president and which promulgates rules. Then you have the independent agency model. Right. So you have the SEC, the FTC, the FCC. And these are five member commissions with a partisan balance. And they have a like a quasi legislative function. Uh, And then you have the Sherman Act model, where the like the the main antitrust statute in the United States, like it's crazy. You try to figure out, you're like, you're like, what does the antitrust law say? And you look it up and it says, well, they can't have a restraint of commerce. And you're like, what? Right. And, and so basically the whole thing is a punt to the judiciary, right? Exactly. So it uh, then it can operate in, in three different ways, right? So it's like the courts can say, w- one move is to say EPA style delegation, you can't do. Another move is to say, okay, we are going to question the legitimacy of the independent agency set up as like a as a concept. And then a third is that like the the most traditional is that kind of Sherman Act punt, right? Just say like, there's not going to be an agency at all. We're just tossing it to the courts. But then like what the judges think is explicitly the most important factor in the whole thing, right? Like that law, it's a weird thing. You look it up and it, it passed like the Senate like almost unanimously. And you're like, well, how could that be? And it's, well, the conservative members just had confidence that like nothing would come of it. And I think it's also worth pointing out that like when we talk about laws getting struck down, especially in the context of because the court rules that Congress can't punt to another branch of government, there is an obvious remedy here, which is for Congress to pass new laws. The debate that we're having over the concept of how much power the courts should have in the three-branch system is to a large extent a debate over, well, assuming that Congress is incapable of passing a new law to conform to a judicial principle, which really does also come out of Shelby County, where the Voting Rights Act had been overwhelmingly reauthorized on a broad bipartisan basis. And in the aftermath of the court deciding that sections of it were no longer constitutional, there wasn't a critical mass of interest in Congress in authorizing a new version, uh, you know, or, or, or kind of re- of changing those sections of the VRA to conform to what Shelby County had done, or even to like propose an alternate, you know, robust framework that could then have gotten litigated in its own right. So like, you know, I've been joking for a bit that the current flow of government is the executive branch makes policy, the judicial branch rules on that policy, and the Congress, you know, votes on when to decides when to start voting on judges who will do the who will do the evaluation. But as we kind of talk about the role of the courts, it's impossible to talk about that without pointing out that like the 
other two branches of government have settled into an equilibrium that is by no means inevitable. Right. And I I think that that really speaks to one of the major challenges here is that the reason why this has become this fight to the death, the reason why Windsor had to come up before the court, why Obergefell had to come up before the court is because the like, even when you look back, I remember I was writing something about how the court and how conservatives have thought about uh, marriage equality in the past is that do you remember back in 2004 when a major voting issue was the idea of getting a constitutional amendment to uh, ban same sex marriage nationwide? And that was like a big thing that George W. Bush was going to push through if he won again in 2004. And I don't know if you recall what happened after that, but that did not take place. So much of our and perhaps this is one of my libertarian hobbies horse, but so much of our politics is based on the proposition of doing things or the performance of doing things in Congress where those things are not actually done. And so with marriage, that fight was taken from court to court to court to court. I was at the human rights campaign back in 2014 and 2015. And that was so much of just recognizing like you need to get the the right cases before the right judges because this needs to go through the right circuits because at no point the individual states that voted on marriage, the individual states that put uh, marriage equality on the ballot, there was a recognition that if you wanted to have marriage equality at the federal level for the benefits of the tax benefits that came up in the Windsor case or for any of the other benefits that happen when you are allowed to be legally married in all 50 states, you this was going to be a court challenge. This is going to be a court battle because I think that and we've seen that it's not new. We've seen that even with Loving versus Virginia, this 1967 case that struck down bans on miscegenation or mixed race marriage, as fun people call it. You recognize that there is an understanding by many of the people who are making these arguments that that was the perfect test case, this case coming out of obviously the Lovings, so aptly named. But the understanding was that if they did not get this right, there would be states and there are still some states today with laws that no one follows or that that would still bar mixed race marriage. And so this is not a new challenge. The lack of a willingness of Congress to do things on these big cultural issues, but the understanding that the courts will have to because otherwise the status quo would remain for decades into the future. But I do think that that's how we got here. And that's how this moment has been shaped is this understanding that the courts are where we answer these big questions or where we get answers to these big questions where you know you can be as upset as you want to be about the ACA case or about Obergefell or about Windsor. You can call it the Dred Scott case. But then about three years later, you're going to say that you're a libertarian on the issue and everyone will have moved on. So, so I want to point to the ACA case that's that's pending right now, oh, because if anything, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if anything, I think this case belongs in its own category. Like I was talking before about how Gorsuch is probably has this whole theory that's probably going to have that's probably going to dismantle much of the Clean Air Act. But I at least believe he's sincere about that. Like there is a serious, like well thought out legal theory behind what he wants to do there. I happen to disagree with it, but like it's not like he's just making stuff up here. 
there is this Obamacare case pending before the Supreme Court right now. And I mean, I can go into detail about the legal argument. It is essentially that when Congress reduced the amount of the individual mandate to zero, so when they effectively repealed it, they secretly repealed the entire law. And I can go into more of it, but I promise you if I spend the, an hour explaining it, it'll just make it sound less stupid. It will just make it sound more stupid. It is the worst legal argument, literally the worst legal argument I have ever seen receive an argument in the Supreme Court of the United States. And if this argument were to prevail... Congress could fix it fairly easily. They they could raise the the penalty under the mandate to one dollar, and that that would be sufficient. Or they could repeal it. Yeah, or that yeah, like there's all but like the bet here, like the reason why this stupid lawsuit was bought was brought is that Republicans are betting that Congress is going to be too dysfunctional. And if they can just get five justices to do some extraordinarily partisan thing here, no one's going to be able to do a damn thing about it. And like Honestly, that's my biggest fear about a six to three Republican court. Like, I mean, I like to think I'm a good lawyer. I can like read precedents and I can read dissents and try to figure out what direction individual justices want to take the law. But there's just going to be a lot of these black sheep cases. And if the Supreme Court greenlights them by buying into this nutty Obamacare case. The Federalist Society is going to take one look at that and go, oh, game on. We can bring whatever we want now. And I can't even begin to predict what the Supreme Court's going to do in the future. So, I mean, I think another way of thinking about this, right, is that, you know, the American uh, legislative process has a high number of veto points, right? That you could think about a formally identical system of judicial review, but with a like, you know, Canadian model of, of, of parliament, right? In which laws pass very expertly. And in that case, some of these doctrines, right? That, that sort of exist on paper might not be that consequential in practice, right? If you greatly limited the discretion of executive agencies, but had a highly efficient unicameral parliament, then okay, like you would respond to executive branch experts recommending changes by rapidly drafting new laws and passing them, right? And like, fair enough. And so like one could say, okay, I think it would be better, right, to have a system in which changes to technology or to the objective situation are addressed through legislative means rather than through independent agencies. But the way to realize that vision of how government should function would be to like, you know, it's like you're turning a tractor, right? It's like you got to push one lever is like less discretion to the agencies, but in the other direction, like more actual institutional capacity to, to change laws rapidly right and but what we have in america right there's there's no effort to increase that right to have a rapid ping pong between congress and and, and the judicial system we're instead basically taking a system with a lot of veto points and just like adding one more so it's like good for you you had a majority you had a big majority 10 years ago but like it's gone now so bye bye law and and how are you going to get it back 
So, so I, I'll add that there's data on this that shows that it is getting worse. Uh, Professor Rick Hassan has a paper on this. And what he has shown, and I'm doing this from memory, so I apologize if I don't remember these numbers precisely, but from like 1975 until I think 1990, Congress overruled about 12 Supreme Court decisions every in every two year period between between elections. So 12 now by overruling, that didn't mean that they completely wiped it out. They might tweak something. They might like change a procedural norm. But in some way, Congress passed, I believe it's about a dozen laws every two years that in some way changed the law from what the Supreme Court has said. Um, I can't remember how far a study goes. I think it goes to 2013. But in the most recent period that he looks at, that number is down to about 2.8 times every two years. So Congress is overruling the Supreme Court about 20 percent as often as it used to. And if you're a justice, I mean, you think you got free game now because, you know, you know that the that the Congress isn't going to step in. That's a good place to wrap it up. Um, Thanks so much, Ian, for joining us. Thanks, Jane and Dara. Thanks uh, to our sponsors and to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Uh, And the Weeds will be back on Friday. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux. So how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. So if it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts.